0: Thanks for joining us. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, Washington columnist for the Boston Globe, sitting in for Diane Rehm. She's on vacation. U.S. officials say it's likely Russia hacked the Democratic National Committee's email, but who passed the stolen files to WikiLeaks remains unclear. The Syrian government lays out a Russian-backed plan to take Aleppo from rebels and create a humanitarian corridor. And Turkey shuts down more than a 100 media outlets as it continues its crackdown on the military and journalists here to discuss this week's top international stories on the Friday News Roundup, James Kitfield of National Journal, Nancy Youssef of the Daily Beast, and Christian Carl of Foreign Policy. Welcome, you guys. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. And also, we, of course, always want to hear from our listeners. We'll be taking your calls, your comments, and your questions throughout the hour. You can call us on 1-800-433-8850. You can send us an email to drshow.com at wamu.org. You can also join us on Facebook or send us a tweet to at DR show. All right, so let's start, guys, with the sort of national and foreign story mixed all in one, which is this incredible, you know, 21st century Watergate break in, but with the twist of it being a foreign government, apparently, the DNC committee email getting hacked supposedly by the Russians. How certain are we, James, that Russia was behind it?
1: the intelligence uh agencies seem, seem very certain about that they've uh you know they if they don't know they don't usually say you know categorically one way or the other they have said categorically a number of times to a number of reporters this is russia Um, Two uh, private security firms who the DNC called in to try to trace this also traced it to Russia. So I think we're pretty comfortable that Russia was behind this. What's interesting to me is we can't know how it got from Russia to WikiLeaks, but we do know it was hacked roughly two months ago, and then they were released on the eve of the Democratic Convention, which if you connect those dots, I think everyone can assume that, as one intelligence official was quoted, you know, Russia had the means, the motive, and the opportunity here to sort of make the Democrats look bad on the eve of their a big convention, and they did that.
0: And you say the motive to to make Hillary Clinton and her party look bad, because why?
1: Two things. One of which, Putin hates Clinton. Um, when in 2011, or I think it was 2011, 2010, the Russian elections were, you know, categorically fraudulent, and she called him out on that. A lot of people came, went to the streets in Moscow, and he, uh, he he was very, he's always been very upset about and quote unquote, meddling in his uh, domestic affairs. And also Trump, they had this sort of weird relationship Trump has said a lot of things that that Putin would love to hear from a major American figure like, you know, maybe I will or maybe I won't come to the defense of a NATO member if Russia attacks him. Um, You know, he calls Putin a strong leader and, and maybe a possible best friend uh, if he would just come to my Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. So there's this strange sort of admiration society going on between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, and you can imagine, I mean, I'm not sure, I, I get the sense that maybe Trump is doing this for, for the headlines, etc., but Putin is not doing it for headlines. Putin sees someone here that he, I think, he could quite happily see someone, uh, American president, calling into the question whether Crimea, um, you know, we should remain sanctions for their annexation of Crimea, calling into question whether the transatlantic alliance is um, you know, Article 5 bedrock uh, commitment would be honored by the United States. Well, so- you
0: make a good point that Donald Trump this week, it's not only that he talked about the hack and seemed to be encouraging Russians to, you know, whether it's hack more or simply find any of Hillary Clinton's missing emails and pass them along, seemingly encouraging espionage by a foreign state. But also, it, it is true what James said that 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 Vladimir Putin does have an antipathy for Hillary Clinton. Nancy, I'm thinking about... About how I went on several trips with Hillary as Secretary of State to Russia, and I remember one where we had to go to uh, Putin's villa, and he made us wait an awfully long time. And although it was a, you know, as you looked at them, a civil meeting, um, it was very chilly. And so, you know, there's something in it for Vladimir Putin if he manages to get Donald Trump elected. Isn't that right, Nancy?
2: Well, it's interesting because James points out something that I think was lost in all the controversy about him calling on um, the Russians to um, potentially find the missing 30,000 emails is that he said he would, quote, look into um, recognizing the annexation of Crimea, which has been a part of Ukraine for decades. And that's a tangible, unequivocal, can't argue sarcasm, um, foreign policy shift, a major one by the United States. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is there hasn't been as much consistency, I think, as people see. For example, last week he was saying that all NATO members need to put forward their 2 percent of their GDP required. Otherwise, the United States might not recognize or um, carry out its agreements with Might NATO. not
0: defend them if That's the Baltic right. states are attacked. Although I believe Estonia is actually one of the states that actually is paying yes. its fair share. Right. And he was asked about defending the Baltics. Actually, they are paying their fair share.
2: Okay, but let's say that that goes through. A stronger NATO is not in Putin's interest. And so there's a disconnect between Week to week, it's hard to find a connective thread in terms of a foreign policy strategy. It appears to be veering towards um, a a closer alliance, a stronger relationship with Russia, and yet there are hiccups and inconsistencies along the way that makes it hard to actually construct a Trump doctrine.
0: Christian, we have an email from a listener, Scott in Delaware, who wants us to discuss the fact that, in his words, he says most world leaders are for Hillary except for Russia, who is for Trump. Is that
3: true? (laughs) Well, I haven't polled all world leaders, but uh, I, it would seem, I think, from what we do know, that a lot of world leaders tend to favor Hillary simply because she's a known quantity. Uh, that I don't think that would be very surprising. I mean, a lot of them have done business with her and know her well. I just wanted to mention something else on the Trump-Russia issue. For me, I think the single most ominous thing in the past few days, which is saying a lot, because the things that James Nancy mentioned are extremely serious, Uh, Trump talks a lot. But what has he actually done? Well, we know that one thing that he's done was to actually intervene in the formulation of the Republican Party platform and water down the the plank about coming to Ukraine's defense against Russia, supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression. And that I find particularly startling. I mean, it's one thing when people, you know, bluster and they act like blowhards. But this is one uh, aspect, this is one area, and this seems to be the, the, the one area in the Republican Party platform where Trump felt like he actually had to do something and change it. And I find that extremely ominous. Was he... Showing that he can deliver? I don't know. But that's, it's very, very, very bad stuff.
0: It's a very strange question because one wonders what would be Donald Trump's motive in trying to weaken the Republican platform in terms of its stance against Russia, in terms of its strength about defending Ukraine. And it relates to, we have a listener. Um, Karen who's emailed in and says you need to address the question of Trump's business interests in Russia and those of Paul Manafort his campaign chairman. So James right. tell so us Paul, about that. Paul
1: Manafort's campaign manager um, has had dealings with a lot of Russian oligarchs. He's advised them he advised the former president of Ukraine who was a Russian uh, ally who was basically had to flee the country because of protests a few years ago so there are these sort of not particularly clear sort of business ties. I mean Trump, you know, has run his beauty pageant in Moscow. He has tried to buy uh, uh, buildings. Uh, so we don't really know because we, we can't see his tax returns. So we really don't know what's going on there. But can I just make one point? I was in Estonia last year with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and they are frightened to death. You know, we don't seem – um, the Trump camp doesn't seem to see, understand how their rhetoric is frightening our closest allies in NATO. The, when, when Bush, the Bush administration was distracted in 2008 and it looked like Georgia wanted to join NATO, they invade NATO, occupy two provinces with Russian-speaking populations and nixes NATO's uh, aspirations, to, I mean, uh, Georgia's aspirations to join NATO. Same thing in 2014 with Ukraine when the European Union was trying to draw it into the Western sphere economically. You know, Trump, I mean, uh, Putin intervenes, annexes Crimea, start, foments an insurrection in the Eastern Ukraine. They have their eyes now on The Baltics. They are very upset that the Baltics were allowed to join NATO. Uh, When uh, the Estonians had the gall to move a Soviet statue in 2007, the Russians launched a cyber attack that crippled that country's infrastructure for more than two weeks. When President Obama went to Estonia in 2014 to sort of calm their nerves after the Crimea annexation, um, the Russians attacked a border post two days after. Obama left Estonia, kidnapped a, an Estonian intelligence officer, put him on a show trial. These They have their eyes securely fastened on the Baltics, and if they see any weakening of our commitment to defend them, They may see that as an opportunity.
0: They actually kidnapped that Estonian border guard just a couple days after Air Force One took off from um, Barack Obama's visit to calm Estonia. So pretty incredible slap in the face timing. You wanted to say something quickly, Christian?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to second what James was saying. You know, uh, what I've heard from a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment is the fear that You know, if the Russians move against the Baltics, it's not going to be some kind of outright invasion. It'll be more something like what they did in Crimea, where they stir up something. Maybe there will be, you know, a problem in the Russian enclave next to the Baltics, and then there will be a train going there through Baltic territory, and it will derail. There will be some kind of extremely ambiguous situation where they can bring in troops. It's going to be very ambiguous and tricky and subtle, and Trump, by uh, saying the things that he has said, virtually invites them to try something like that because if he's going to leave ambiguity in the U.S. position, the Russians will – totally exploit that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. and And w- when we come back, we're going to have to talk about how Russia has responded to all this. But first, we are going to have to take a short break. And when we're back, we'll go to your questions and your comments. You can call us anytime at 1-800-433-8850. Remember, you can send us an email to drshow at org, And you can always join us on Facebook or send us a tweet to at DR Show. We'll take a short break now. Stay with us. DCS Daily, DCS Daily, DCS Daily,
3: it's news,
0: culture, and curiosities
3: from the district, Tacoma Park,
0: Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church,
3: Northeast Washington, D.C. in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily,
0: sign up at DCS.com slash newsletter. DCS.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. I'm Indira Lakshman, I'm Washington columnist for the Boston Globe, sitting in for Diane Rehm. And joining me here in the studio today to wrap up the international news of this week, James Kitfield, contributing editor at the National Journal and senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, and Nancy Youssef, senior defense and national security correspondent for the Daily Beast, and Christian Carl, senior fellow at the Legatum Institute, and contributing editor at Foreign Policy Magazine. Um, okay, guys, so let's get to the point of Russia. What's their defense against U.S. intelligence sources saying that they have hacked the emails? What, what do they say?
2: They were shocked, shocked at such a suggestion that they would in, in any way be involved in this. Uh, uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, while meeting with Karen Laos, said, I don't want to use a four-letter word. We had other officials calling it stupid. Um, not actually a denial, but just a, a guess at the suggestion that the Russians would in any way try to interfere with the outcome of a U.S. presidential election, and so um, they have suggested that um, that, that that any uh, connection with them is is essentially a, a plot against Russia, rather than any um, evidence um, put forth, despite all the sort of um, electronic evidence to the contrary, and and so uh, they. The, and at the same time you have WikiLeaks uh, Julian Assange coming out and talking about um, releasing these as because uh, as a part of a way to sort of point out problems in the campaign and so th- th- together the Russians have been able to sort of take advantage of the ambiguity of who did what to what end if yeah. you will
0: all right well, you mentioned electronic evidence I think we have a call about that. We've got Wilson on the line from washington d c Wilson go ahead
3: oh hi thanks for taking my call Sure. yeah I was I was just curious myself as to what evidence we have that Russia is responsible for
1: this or if it's not something, it seems that we've taken away from the nature of the leak itself and discussing the ethics of what's being revealed and we're just kind of blaming
3: the responsibility of its surfacing.
0: But so you want to know how do American security officials know that the hack came from Russia? Is that your question?
2: Um, Part of it, yeah.
0: Okay, and the other part of it?
2: Uh I'm just curious as to what the nature of the hack revealed. I, I haven't read it or the leak, you know. Okay. What?
0: well we can Why? we can we can review that the leak basically shows that DNC chairwoman debbie Washerman Schultz and other um, DNC officials were essentially favoring Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders in the primary race which they're not supposed to do they're supposed to be neutral so that was the embarrassing allegation that forced the resignation of the party chairwoman but James tell us a little bit about the other part of his question which is what is the electronic evidence and specific fingerprints Cyrillic tracks in cyberspace? What, how do officials know that Russia did it?
1: Well, I'm, and I'm not a cyber expert, but um, there, the, the whole field of forensics on cyber attacks is is one that we've been looking at for years now. We have a, we have a U.S. cyber command that's relatively new under the head of the National Security, uh, Security Agency. Um, they spent a lot of time of looking at how you can trace where these things come from, and there's been pretty unanimous uh, confirmation from, bo- from numerous intelligence agencies as well as private security forums, this was traced to a, a an actor who used a certain Guccifer uh, was his, his sort of uh, his his name on the internet. Um, that they have tracked in the past to Russian intelligence services. So they feel very confident. And like I said, it's not in there. If, if they're not sure or they have reason not to confirm, they, they don't normally confirm. It. If they confirm something you, as a reporter, um, in my experience, and I'd be interested to hear what my colleagues have to say but you, or you, but they, when they confirm something this clearly, they usually have the goods.
0: Well, I have actually read also, and I think one of you may have written the story, um, that Russia also tries to keep an ambiguity about when it does things like this. They want to sort of let the Americans know, yeah, yeah, we did it without outright saying we did it as a way of setting them off balance. Was that your story, Christian? Yeah,
3: that was my story. Um, I I, I found it very amusing that a lot of people were saying, oh, well, how could the Russians be so sloppy to leave their fingerprints all over this, uh, all over the stuff that they've done? And I think the answer to that is, well, they may have just been sloppy because sometimes they're sloppy, and you have competing agencies. In this particular case, there seem to have been two separate hacking groups from Russian intelligence, the from the FSB, the successor agency to the old KGB, and the GRU, which is Russian military intelligence. And uh, it would seem, according to the experts, that these two groups didn't even know that they're competitors were on the side as well, right? Or their colleagues, let's their, say, since they're colleagues. all working
0: for the same team. Exactly.
3: Let's call them <laughs> colleagues. Um, so th- that might be the source of this perceived sloppiness. But my, I, I have my own theory, and maybe it's a bit quirky. But in my experience, and um, I've had a certain degree of experience this being a foreign uh, Moscow correspondent myself, the Russians actually like to get in your head – they like to get up front. When our ambassador, Michael McFaul, had trouble with the Russians a few years ago, they just came after him. They were, you know, sending news crews after him on the street and surprising his family. And they really wanted him to know that they were mad at him and they wanted to make his life unpleasant. So some and, of it could be psychological warfare. And I think it's the same thing here, frankly.
2: I think it's worth noting that this is not without precedence. The Joint, uh, joint Chiefs of Staff was hacked um, last year and there were suspicions that the Russians were involved, other U.S. U.S. government agencies have been um, hacked with, and, and the Russians were suspected behind a by um, uh, law enforcement. And now uh, Reuters report from yesterday um, saying that the Democratic Congressional um, Campaign Committee um, has been hacked in an effort to see who the donors were. And already there are suspicions that the Russians were behind that. So this is not an isolation, but part of a broader pattern that has been going on for years.
0: Well, we have a couple of listeners who want to really drill down a bit more on the Putin economic ties, um, if there are any, to Russia. Jason in Frankfurt, Kentucky, is saying that his ties to Russia need to be seriously examined, not tossed off like a joke. And Sharon emails us and says, Trump needs to release his taxes. What is he hiding are they loans from Soviet oligarchs? The
1: press needs
0: to start a drumbeat to force him to release those. James, what do you say?
1: Well, I, I think the press has tried, and and he he sort of shrugs it off, and it doesn't seem to hurt his polls. So I don't know. We have you know we haven't had a presidential nominee who didn't release their taxes in modern times. So it's it's extremely unusual. And these kind of instances tell you why um, we w- we should know if this if this candidate has a you know close economic ties with. Of an adversary who has declared that NATO and we are the leading member of NATO it, is its enemy, and they put that in, you know, bluntly into the, one of their strategic white papers last year for the first time, calling NATO the enemy. So if if we're Putin's enemy, then you would expect him to try to hack various of our institutions. Um, we we do know for a fact that um, uh, Mr. Trump had a house that he uh, down in Florida that was he's you know bought for forty one million dollars and sold for hundred million dollars to a Russian gark um, netting you know sixty million dollars so um, maybe that's, you know, he's a, he is good at, at real estate, so I'm not saying that that is, is some nefarious tie. But we do know there have been ties between him. He has tried to build uh, in Moscow. Um, we don't know the details of that because, again, he hasn't released his taxes. So some, things, some of this you can't know until you actually get a chance to, to look at his tax returns. And his
0: campaign manager, Paul Manafort, has done a lot of business with Russian oligarchs, as well as with Viktor Yanukovych, who was the previous pro-Putin Ukrainian leader um, before he fell and then Putin went in and seized Crimea from right. his successor. Right. I mean, so. there
1: are these ties between the inner circle of, of Donald Trump and Russian oligarchs. And again, there has been this strange sort of back and forth between him and Vladimir Putin. Um, it's it's hard to get to the bottom of it. I mean, he unless again, I think the tax returns. And I take the, the listener's point. I think with this, uh, the strange things he's been saying about Russia, including calling the in question, the fundamental Uh, American commitment to NATO. um, I think the drumbeat will increase that we show us your taxes, but we need to make sure that there's not something here that we don't know about.
0: Well, it's interesting because a lot of the military leaders who formed this array, this phalanx on the stage at the DNC last night, you know, surrounding retired Marine General John Allen to testify for Hillary, uh, a lot of them said they were doing that because of the things that they see as wild out of the mainstream utterances from Donald Trump. And many of those include, as you say, um, his saying that he would reconsider the NATO commitments.
3: A few years ago, Trump's son said, we are getting a lot of investment from the Russians. He said that on on the record. And the New York Times, I think, has documented one of the most interesting examples. As James says, you know, without the tax returns, we really can't know a lot of stuff for sure. But to me, the most interesting case was this case... Very well documented by the New York Times from a couple of years ago when Trump actually had to settle a lawsuit out of court from some dis- with some disgruntled buyers of condos that he had developed with a company that was financed by Russian and Kazakhstani money, and which included several people with criminal backgrounds. Hmm. And it's, again, very interesting that he settled this case out of court because the people who were suing him were threatening to illuminate the backgrounds of those people and all of the dicey dealings that were involved in this particular deal. And there is also some suggestion that the Russians kept financing this company that was his partner – And that money then, you know, perhaps being laundered from various sources in the former Soviet Union was going into Trump's coffers. So, again, we don't know that part of the story, but we do know. And he's had these very dubious dealings with specific people from the former Soviet Union.
2: I just want to address the military because I spend a lot of time with the military, and remember that for for generals and leaders, um, precision, honoring deals is a very key part of what they do. Planning for operations. If you have a leader saying um, we're, we're perhaps going to um, allow Putin to annex Crimea, for an organization where a lot of these generals came of age at the end of the Cold War, when there were tens of thousands of troops in Europe as a precaution against Putin, you can imagine that this just runs against all their training and all their instincts in terms of how to plan for military operations, naming an adversary, planning for an adversary, and just um, how they plan for um, uh, protecting uh, their allies and protecting U.S. interests. Hmm.
1: A, f- a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs told me once that you know people think that we're sort of warmongers, but the the, the uniform military is like the most moderate group you'll ever find, and it's true. They're very cautious people. They're very um, they 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 want certainty in their leadership. And so when Donald Trump says, "I'm going to torture uh, terrorism suspects again," something, and I'm we... going to
0: order the military to do it, he right. said, "If I'm the commander in chief, they'll have to do it."
1: And kill the family members of the wives and suspects. children. I mean that 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 sends a, a blaring alarm up if you're. a Military person, that this guy might be more erratic than than you than we've, anything we've seen come down the line. And that before. was
0: part of what last night on the big stage at the DNC that the retired general Allen said, which is if Hillary Clinton is president, I'm confident we're not going to be told to torture, and uh, and that we won't treat our foreign relations like business dealings. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and you're listening to the Diane Rehm Show. If you'd like to get in on our conversation, you can call us at 1-800-433-8850. You can send us an email to drshow at wamu.org, and you can always find us on Facebook or send us a tweet to at drshow. I'd like to bring in a listener, David, from Kalamazoo, Michigan. David, go ahead. Hi.
2: Hi. Um, I was calling. I was just wondering because I think... You know, as Americans,
0: we've always taken for granted the above-reproach integrity that our military demonstrates, including staying out of our political uh, elections, you know, when they're in office. And I'm just curious what the the panelists believe. You know, what kind of turmoil would we stir up electing a commander-in-chief who might put the integrity of our military officers at risk and potentially, you know— stir up some kind of no longer following directions. All right. Well, thank uh, you. that's something that's never happened with us before. Thank you, David. Nancy, you cover the Pentagon.
2: I do. And Marine General Joseph Dunford, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has put out an order repeatedly to the rank and file that they are not to speak about political matters. He refuses to address anything related to politics. He has been adamant about that in an effort to protect that that wall. It's interesting. I did a story uh, a few months ago talking to the troops, and there are some who are talking about how they're going to leave the military of Trump's elected. There are some who are really enthusiastic. It's a fascinating mix that's going on within the building. I don't want to overgeneralize, but generally speaking, you'll find that um, general officers are more inclined to be worried, and rank and file are more likely to be enthusiastic. Now, to the caller's question about the military, the wall between politics and the military, remember these are retired generals, and we've seen retired generals pop up in politics before. We've seen them as presidents. We've seen them as presidential candidates. But there is a really aggressive effort happening within the Pentagon to to keep that wall up, and it's becoming harder and harder because this is such an unusual campaign, and it's just dominated so much of the discussion, and you have military planners who, in some ways, might have to already start planning for some of these proposals that Trump is putting forth. So it's you find that there's a wall there, but there's a
0: real aggressive effort to keep it intact. Of course, we can't forget Dwight D. Eisenhower himself. He was a general, and General Allen, who we're referring to, is retired. All right, let's look at another subject. Russia, of course, is linked to this topic, too, but it's about the Syrian government and Russia announcing a plan to create safe corridors in Aleppo, Syria, to allow civilians and unarmed rebels to leave the area. They're calling it a humanitarian operation. Tell us about the plan, Christian, and why the U.S. and U.N. officials have expressed skepticism about it.
3: Well, the plan is actually coupled with uh, the most recent moves by the Syrian government and the Russians. The Russians have been conducting a very, very effective campaign of airstrikes uh, to defend, to help the forces of President Assad. And with that help now, the Syrian regular army has now succeeded and militias, its allied militias, some of them Iranian-supported, have now succeeded in almost completely closing the ring around Aleppo, which is a major source of resistance to Assad. Uh, So uh, this proposal to open up a humanitarian corridor and let civilians out is uh, one of those things that looks good on the surface. You know, it's always nice to hear about humanitarian corridor. If I were a Syrian of any kind, civilian or a rebel in Aleppo, and if I'd been bombed into to the ground by the Russian and Syrian air Force over the past couple of years, I would think very, very carefully about trying to use this corridor to leave the city. Uh, there are a lot of questions about how reliable any Russian and Assad promises are, in but this it respect. does
0: include an amnesty offer.
3: Yes, yeah, Assad has issued this uh Wait, James amnesty. is
0: laughing. This yeah. is, uh, okay,
3: James, That's why like, are you
0: laughing at the amnesty offer? Yeah, James, offer? go
3: for it. <laughs>
1: Uh, we know from from very brave journalists who who who, who took the pictures and, and were inside their their little gulag in there that they torture and kill their prisoners um, uh, in great great numbers. We we know this to be a fact. So if you're a rebel, and it, what's interesting about this this humanitarian carter, there's three carters are offering. One, if you're a foreign fighter, I mean not a foreign fighter, if you're a, a rebel fighter, you have your own little carter, and you can't go to rebel controlled territory. You have to go into the in the loving arms of Bashar al-Assad. Um, uh, I don't know many people who would want to take that bet that he's actually going to live up to his claims. I think it's Russia and Syria. They're they're going to put a siege on Aleppo, and they their modus operandi is to starve these places out. Um, I think they're trying to say, well, we gave you a chance. Um, we'll see. I mean, I hope that you know, and the United Nations is saying, okay, let us run the corridors. or let us be in control of this. So we'll see. But there's plenty of reason for skepticism.
0: Well, and I just want to make clear to listeners that that was a rueful, bitter laugh. On On your point, on your part, you are not laughing, certainly, at the Syrian war, uh, by any means. Okay, so we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have more of your calls and your questions. You can reach us at 1-800-433-8850. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, Washington columnist for the Boston Globe, sitting in for Diane Reem. Joining me here in the studio are James Kitfield, contributing editor at the National Journal, Nancy Youssef, Pentagon correspondent at the Daily Beast, and Christian Karl, senior fellow at the Legatum Institute and contributing editor at Foreign Policy Magazine. We were talking before the break about the Syria situation, and one new thing that happened this week is the rebel group known as Al Nusra or Jabhat al Nusra is severing its ties with al-Qaeda. Why, Nancy?
2: Well, they formally announced that they were denouncing their relationship. Remember, Jebed al-Nusra was... Al-Qaeda. And this week they announced that they were denouncing their relationship with Al-Qaeda, that they were forming a new group called Jebet Fetih al-Shem, um, saying that they are no longer um, part of Al-Qaeda. Now, it's an interesting time that they're doing this because for years and years and years, the uh, moderate, so-called moderate opposition have been calling for them to do so. Jebet al-Nusra has been the most effective fighting force against the Assad regime. But of course, they were affiliated with Al-Qaeda, which meant that the U.S. couldn't provide them supplies or weapons or in any way be affiliated with them. And neither could the moderate opposition receiving U.S. benefits, if you will. And so for years, the opposition has been asking Jabhat al-Nusra to distance itself. It did it this week at a time when um, Russia and the United States are talking about increasingly coordinating with one another, sharing intel, sharing targets to target Jabhat al-Nusra. And so Jabhat al-Nusra, it's a smart decision because what they're saying is, how can you, U.S., and Russia strike us when we're no longer affiliated with al-Qaeda and, in fact, are an effective fighting force Against Nusra now, or excuse me, against the um, Assad regime. Now, the U.S. is saying we don't buy that. We think this is a, this is just rhetoric, and that they're saying it to to um, save themselves from any strikes. And that as soon as they are no longer needing to distance themselves, they will realign with Al- with Al Qaeda. And it might appear that way because the head of Al Qaeda, Zawahri, put out a statement, and it, and a few minutes later, the head of then Jeb del Nusra put out a statement in what appeared to be a coordinated effort. And so are they really separate or, or not? We'll see. Um, they put out their first press- Or it's press
0: just rebranding.
2: Yeah, uh, to spare themselves from potential U.S. and Russian airstrikes. Um, they put out their first press release, I think, this morning, our time, and said we have no aspirations outside of Syria in an effort to say, essentially, we're not a threat to you. But where it goes, we'll see. But General Votel uh, this week, who's the head of Central Command, said, look, we're not buying it, and this doesn't change our plans at all.
0: So the rebranding hasn't worked for the Ameri- for, from the American point of view. I mean, one really striking thing here is that with all of this fighting and all of this targeting of rebels, whatever they're named, um, the civilians are still paying the price. A Syrian activist group said that the U.S. coalition airstrikes that were meant to target ISIS have actually killed 28 civilians. What do we know about this?
1: I, I saw that reporting. I have not seen anything confirming it yet, so I, I don't want to, I, I, you know, if, 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 it will be investigated, I'm sure, because uh, they've investigated past claims of this, so, um, it, you know, it's certainly possible. Um, we also learned this week that the, another hospital has been, been bombed. I think it's the fifth hospital. That's by been, the Assad regime. By the Assad or the Russians, which is, it's unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, to go to that skepticism about when they start offering humanitarian corridors, um, if they're bombing hospitals uh, as a regular... Modus operandi, it makes you wonder how much humanitarian uh, thought they're giving this.
0: And Human Rights Watch came out with this report yesterday documenting 47 different cluster munition attacks across three parts of Syria since May. The, basically, they're saying that Russian and Syrian air forces are using cluster bombs and killing and maiming civilians.
2: Since May 27th, and remember that cluster munitions are banned by 119 countries, even though Russia and Syria are not signatories to the convention that bans the use of them. what's Now, the Russians and the Syrians will say, that we're not using them. But one of the things that the Human Rights Watch report had, which was so interesting, was really specific details. For example, they cited July 11th incident in which... Um, the munitions were dropped from an Su-34, which is only a Russian jet. And so they really offer specific details. The other interesting thing about this is that the report found from September 30th to February 27th, there were 34 munitions attacks. And now remember, since May 27th, there are 47 more. And what happened in between then was the ceasefire. So not only are they saying there are munitions attacks, but that they're getting more aggressive as um, uh, the war is closing in on Aleppo. As they said, the majority of these attacks were in Aleppo.
0: Well, let me ask you, Chris you know, all of this ignores the essential elephant in the room here, which is what about the peace talks? I mean, that's what Kerry and Lavrov are supposed to be talking about all the time. Is that effort to really end the war and have a peace that's been going on ever since Hillary Clinton was secretary of state?
3: Is that just dead? Well, uh, uh, that's a good question. I think it's a little early to say that it's dead, but it certainly doesn't look very encouraging at the moment, I think. My colleagues are better qualified to talk about the details. It's it's on
1: life support. Uh, Basically, yeah, uh, Reuters
0: was quoting someone saying if it's not dead, it's pretty badly wounded. It's,
1: you know, Assad's winning this war. He's he's the the biggest uh, rebel held area now is Aleppo. They've surrounded it. Uh, they they are winning this war. There's almost no uh, leverage we have to convince them, to, you know, Assad to come and reach any terms in a negotiated peace settlement until you change the dynamic where he thinks he's winning. And, oh, by the way, he is winning. So, um, it, it, it may, it, you know, I, I, we have to admire John Kerry's persistence in trying to reach this peace deal, but now he's proposed this latest thing where we'll have a joint military command with Russia where we attack al-Nusra, um, but the, the Syrian air force has to stand down be grounded as part of that. Well, I haven't seen any indication that the Syrian Air Force is willing to be grounded or that Russia is willing to pressure Assad to do that. So, I mean, this this peace deal has been uh, violated. Every term of it has been violated continually by the Russians and the Syrians, and they think they're winning. So um, unless something happens to change the dynamic and the momentum on the battlefield, there would be no peace deal because they think they can win.
0: Because Assad thinks he can win. Okay, we have one caller, um, rather one listener related to Syria Pooj and Kerry, North Carolina, wants to know about the substance of Hillary Clinton's emails on Syria. Do any of you know um, what the emails of Hillary's that were released in the State Department investigation that were made public about what Hillary said about email and email? To, uh, about Syria. Syria and email? Do any of you know?
1: I don't remember seeing anything, anything on that.
0: I don't remember significant or it doesn't. Of course, Senate. the focus was on Benghazi and on Libya right. um, of the of those investigations. All I right. mean, it
1: was very clear that, that, that Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, and this has been st- stated by her and others, that um, you know she was much more aggressive early on yes. um, about arming the quote unquote moderates. And at that time, there was peaceful demonstrations, so there were more moderates, if you will. Um, that was something that the Obama White House went against the administration. I mean, the uh, advice of almost all its senior national security leaders.
0: Right. In the same way that she pushed Obama on support airstrikes in Libya that led to the fall of Gaddafi, she also pushed, uh, she pushed Obama to try to support and arm rebels and be more forward-leaning in Syria, but he chose not to do that.
3: And her relative hawkishness on these issues is, again, one of the reasons why the Russians don't like her and don't trust her, because... Um, they have oppos- They have the opposite position on all of these issues.
0: All right. Let's talk about this Islamic State-inspired attack in France this week, a small village near Rouen um, in which a, a an 80-something-year-old priest was attacked during the middle of mass. Nancy.
2: He was finishing mass, Jacques uh, Hamel, an 85-year-old priest. Two men come in with knives, they tell the priest to kneel, he resists, they stab him, they take a nun and some of the worshippers hostage, and um, there's eventually a standoff with the police in which they're killed. Both 19-year-olds who, um, in a video subsequently released that was pre-recorded, they declared an allegiance to ISIS in what appeared to be an effort to sort of... uh, start up a, a, a religious war between Christians and Muslims. We've seen this sort of play out in the region as we've seen um, the dysphoria of Christians in places like Iraq. We haven't seen it um, uh, in in Europe in this way. But what was interesting is in one of the attackers of of the priests said in the video that there were going to be more attacks like this in France. And remember that France has, taken a, a re, has sustained a number of attacks. Um, of course, what happened earlier this month in Nice, the Charlie Hebdo attack of January 2015, the November 15 attack on the three locations in Paris. And this attack... Coupled with those has really stoked um, real frustrations among the amongst the French um, people who saw right wing politicians as sort of going too far or suddenly more receptive to, to them these two or at least one of them excuse me had was being monitored by the French authorities since March and was still able to perpetuate this attack and so I think the 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 audacity of the attack. Um, and the fact that it came just a few weeks after what happened in Nice has really started a national conversation and put President Hollande's um, tenure in jeopardy as people see him as being too weak on these
0: issues. You make a good point that the Nice attack and the Bataclan and the the theater attacks killed hundreds of people between them, and this is one priest being killed, but he's an 85-year-old Catholic priest whose throat was slit during Mass. It seems like that would touch a really sensitive, sort of cultural cord for
3: people yes i think again it's important to remember what terrorist attacks are designed to do we tend to forget the larger context which is they're not just intended to you know cause, ca- cause casualties they're intended to generate a reaction right and in this particular case they specifically targeted a christian cleric Right, and this to me represents a kind of escalation it 's not something i 've seen them do before. Uh, they are clearly trying to polar to deepen the polarization in France between muslims non Muslims between secularized Muslims and religious Muslims. More division, more To do what? To trigger the French
0: government to crack down on Muslims, to therefore create a backlash by Muslims? Is that the idea?
3: It, it, partly, I think. I think that's very much of it. To trigger a backlash, certainly, to uh, contribute to the erosion of civil liberties, to... Uh, you know, encourage these nationalists like Marine Le Pen, which deepens the divisions the French in society. Right-wing politician,
0: yeah. and we also have to remember this is coming right on the heels of these small but also deadly attacks in Germany. Within a space of one week, there was the axe attack on a train, the mass shooting in Munich that left nine dead, the suicide bomb in Ansbach. So, little cases like this are being repeated
1: across Europe. Oh, and you're gonna you're gonna keep seeing them, unfortunately. Um, to the point of why they're doing this, I mean, and they're they're not shocked. About saying this, and it's in all their literature. They want you know to start a war between Islam and the West. That is their ultimate strategic goal. And if they can create a backlash against Muslims, where Muslims feel I like have no place in the West, that'll greatly facilitate their war against the, between Islam and the West. That they're sure they're going to win by divine providence. So I mean, this is out of their playbook. And when they you know push hundreds of thousands of immigrants and refugees into Europe, um, they created a problem that's going to last years and years and years, just like al-Qaeda did in the 1990s when it kept putting out cells from people they train in their training camps in Afghanistan. is taken years and years and years to clean that up. It'll, it'll be the same here.
0: Although, interestingly, if they're trying to get the policy on refugees to change, Angela Merkel, who has really taken a leadership role, the German Chancellor, said that despite these attacks, she's not going to change her policy on admitting Syrian refugees, Afghan refugees, into Germany, which is a very interesting and I imagine and she might politically not, difficult she stand She might not for get re-elected
1: take. with that stance.
0: It's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a very moral stance but as you say it might be a politically difficult one to maintain I'm Indira Lakshmanan and you're listening to the Diane Reem show all right let's talk about Turkey of course there was that failed coup a couple weeks ago Turkey shut down dozens of media outlets in its ongoing crackdown on both the military and the media tell us what the latest is Nancy
2: well, we saw um, 16 channels, 45 newspapers, 26 publishers, 15 magazines shut down, allegedly for their um, allegiance to Gulen, who is suspected as being behind the attack. But there's a real concern that Erdogan is using um, the, the coup as a way to crack down on opponents of any kind and sort of grouping them all together as being aligned with Gulen. This came you on
0: mentioned th- Gulen. He's the man, we should Excuse say, me. the yeah. Islamic cleric who's in hiding, I shouldn't say in hiding, but who's living in exile in the Poconos Mountains in the United States, and and of course Turkey's um, Prime Minister Erdogan has called for him to be extradited. The U.S. has not President. done that. Sorry, President.
2: That's right. And so um, any this has become a day in and day out crackdown on anybody suspected of being in any way affiliated with Gulen, who I should point out at one point was an ally of Erdogan's, but of course that has since collapsed. And so this was on the heels of a, what appeared to be an increased crackdown on the military as well. We saw 1,700 personnel purge from the military. In all, we've seen thousands of teachers, government employees, police officers, soldiers purge from, from their positions and more than 9,000 arrested. And so I think for, for Americans in particular who value their First Amendment so much, seeing a crackdown on the media, I think, was particularly onerous.
3: Christian? Uh, uh, it, it really is quite extraordinary. Nancy was just citing some of those numbers. One of the most astonishing numbers I saw recently was that every dean of a university in Turkey has lost his or her job, 1,500 people. Hmm. Um, so we expect, right, after a coup attempt, we expect to see them purge some people for the military, maybe for the other security forces. But this is the media, it's academia, it's business. The judiciary. The judiciary. It's across the board. It is really extraordinary. I this, wonder
0: whether President Obama and John Kerry are regretting at all the fact that they sort of took a stand to back Erdogan, who's, of course, democratically elected.
1: Well, I mean, it's its, it's Turkey as a NATO ally. It's very hard to say you support a coup in a, in a, in a NATO ally. It's, it's totally against our principles. But I, they know for a fact, and, and we all know now, um, if we didn't know before, that uh, Erdogan uh, is an authoritarian. He is, he's on the way to becoming a dictator of a, of a country that would be laughable to call it a democracy. If you don't have any free institutions, you don't have independent judiciary, if you don't have a free um, media, you're not a democracy. And it's in the club of democracies and the NATO alliance. It's going to make Turkey, I mean, it can, it can it forget. It has
0: wanted to enter the EU. It can
1: forget about that. I mean, th- there is no way, if you ever read the bylaws of the EU, Turkey just doesn't meet any criteria now. Um, the question is, what do you do about NATO? Because this is a really a, a dictatorship that's performing right in front of our eyes, and it's in an alliance that is of democracies. And, you know, it's an important, it's an extremely important ally, but it's, I mean, we have to look at this with a lot of concern.
2: Quick thought, Nancy? The U.S. has already signaled that it has less leverage, General Votel. The CENTCOM commander said that a lot of those who were purged in the military were people that the U.S. worked with, and so they've lost that sort of channel of communication through this through this through these actions by Erdogan.
0: Well, many of our listeners are still fixated, and I don't mean fixated in a bad way, are still really interested in Trump and the Russia connection. We have one email from Tom in Florida who says no classified information briefings should be provided to Trump, the candidate, um, because. We can't trust him over Russia. And we have another um, listener who says, is it possible that the Republicans paid Russia to carry out the hack on the DNC and also the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional um, Campaign Committee, which just announced that it has been hacked? Christian.
3: Well, uh, I can address the last one. Um, There is some evidence that the Russians have hacked uh, Republican uh, institutions as well. Uh, We haven't really seen much about that. I don't know how much... Uh, material from that has been made public. Maybe we'll see some of that farther down the road or after Trump becomes president, if that
0: Happens. So you think
3: unlikely that the Republicans would be paying Russian hackers to do this? I think it is unlikely. I don't think that's the motive for the Russians here.
2: And the intel briefings quickly? Which start next week. Um, I talked to uh, someone at the Department of Homeland Security. What they're measuring, what they're going to determine is intent. And if there's an intent to do harm, that affects it. But By as Donald of now, Trump. That's right. But as of now, there's no intention
0: to in any way alter those briefings as of today. That's Nancy Youssef of the Daily Beast. We also heard from Christian Carl of Foreign Policy Magazine. James Kitfield of the National Journal. Thank you all so much for joining me today, and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in and sharing your thoughts and your questions. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, sitting in for Diane Ream. Thanks for listening. The Diane Ream Show is produced by Sandra Pinkert, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Botee, Susan Casey, Danielle Knight, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Draywinskis.